0: Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers, and as always, I hope you enjoy. In part 2 of our Scream series review, we dissect Scream 2, the sequel to Wes Craven's meta-slasher Scream, which is currently streaming on Tubi TV. Released in 1997 a year after the original, Scream 2 picks up with Cindy Prescott and the other survivors of the first film who are now being terrorized by a Ghostface copycat killer. And to help me uncover the identity of Ghostface is once again, friend of the show, Bernie. Welcome back, man. I appreciate you having me back on, man. I'm excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, me as well. This was a rewatch for you, I believe, but a first time watch for me. So I'm curious, how did Scream 2 hold up as a sequel for you? So I I hadn't seen this in, I mean,
1: Over a decade at least. And um, it's interesting watching movies that you haven't seen in a while. You have like an idea of what it's like, but the full puzzle kind of isn't in place, you know? Um, It was very interesting seeing Leave Schreiber having a little bit more of a prominent role in this. Um, But I I liked it for a a horror sequel. I think this is probably one of the better ones that have been ever made.
0: Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, this was a first time watch for me, like I said. So I had some expectations for what it would be. I mean, it's a positive that Wes Craven and the writer of the original Kevin Williamson combine forces once again. Like, right off the bat, that's a solid start to any sequel. I mean, I think this is the only slasher series where the same director and at least the same writer for the first two or three films return every for almost every film, I believe, because a majority of the time, I mean, especially the classic franchises like you had... Uh, Friday the 13th or Halloween, the directors either didn't want to come back or didn't really know that it was going to be as successful or successful to the point where the film would flourish into eight, nine or 10 sequels. Um, So that right off the bat is like a really positive sign. But I was also somewhat skeptical in terms of while I had faith in that creative team, the idea that they could reinvent what the original did had me a little skeptical because it's kind of like they had lightning in a bottle at one time. And I was anxious that they would lean too much into exactly what the original one was and kind of just make it a little too repetitive. But at the same time, I was excited that they, the potential for them to tackle a new angle with scream and kind of have the same sensibilities, but just ensure that they're not kind of like beating the point of the original film, uh, to death. And I mean, My expectation also for a slasher sequel is like the kills need to be bigger and better while still kind of retaining that referential humor from the original that was so good. But I want to start with the way that the film opens. Scream 1 has that massive set piece opening with Drew Barrymore getting killed that is set up like a traditional slasher. But again, it's very much infused with that referential humor that makes Scream such a horror classic. Um, But what did you think of Scream 2's Stab movie theater premiere opening? Um, It was
1: definitely interesting. I would, I'd love to be in a movie theater that people are going that bananas about something, you know. Um, But it was a unique way of, I think, bringing that in. Um, But as a lot of these slasher movies are, there's a lot of things that you have to kind of play, you know, go along with the story and the narrative of how they're creating it, because uh, some of it was a little on the goofier side than I think even the the original Scream portrayed.
0: Yeah, so that was one of the big things for me in that they could not just recreate the opening of the original Scream, right? They kind of they set out to do what they did with the original Scream, and it subverted our expectations a lot, and that's why it was so successful and so iconic, and yet I'm glad that both Craven and Williamson had the foresight to be like, we can't just redo what we did. And there's a little nod to it where Scream uh, is portrayed as Stab. That's the name of the movie that is in the Scream world. And we see the original scene from the original film playing out on the screen, but it's little snippets. It's not another long 15 minute recreation of that. So I liked that it referenced the original and it further references the original by we see that the film is based on the book that Gail Weathers wrote. And I thought that that was just a great little callback because again, they give us a little bit of what we're familiar with, with a whole lot of new, right? We have a much larger set piece and there's, I don't know how many dozens, maybe there's even a hundred kind of extras in that scene, which is very different from the original film's opening where there was two characters or three characters. So in that regard, I really liked the opening and how. It does such a good job of kind of inserting you into a somewhat familiar scenario. You said that you would love to experience that, but I mean, you and I both have experienced a lot of Marvel movies in the theater with people and we see how uh, how crazy people get into those movies and they dress up and they're shouting in the aisles, especially when like a character gets killed or there's a big moment. So I really liked that Wes Craven gave us, again, that bigger, that bigger and better kind of approach with sequels while tackling some a different element of movies it's not so much just that like this is a horror movie it's more that like this is a fandom of a horror movie and so kind of like capturing that i think gives that opening enough of a uniqueness that differentiates it from the original in a way that is familiar but at the same time it's not just kind of like returning to the well Right. Well, the other thing I will say, um, and this might be a, a giant
1: stain on my reputation, um, I've actually, I'm not a Marvel fan. I'm not like a superhero junkie in that sense. I haven't really been to a theater with that, but maybe I need to go to it now. Um, but to your point, uh, you know, one of the other things that I really, that speaks to this movie, um, the continuity of the cast, you know, you have the same... Courtney Cox for Gale Weathers, Neve Campbell for Sydney Prescott. I think some movies um, and even TV shows are guilty of it, where you know you'll have um, you know uh, Daenerys's love uh, love interest in Game of Thrones is there for three episodes, and then the next season it's a completely new guy, right? So um, the fact that they were able to again, you know, to your point of director and and writer being the same, they had a similar cast um, and they you know, espouse the characteristics that we're, you know, we very much uh, love them for, or actually at least know them for. Um, I think it really helped kind of bring about the narrative in the right way and and kind of made this a, a worthwhile movie to watch.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love that we get that returning cast, and yet it's very true. Again, this is kind of Wes Craven taking a stab at making fun of the genre as a whole. The first two characters in the film, again, they're big name people for, this film and even this time, I mean, Jada Pinkett Smith, Omar Epps, and there's it's twofold in what I want to say about the opening of the film with those two characters is that a both of those characters acknowledge that black characters do not live long in horror movies, and we see what their fate is like. Um, and then also just those are two big names, and again, like the original film, you associate big names with their chances of survival survivability, right? So if you've got a big name there. Oh, they couldn't possibly kill. And then we see both of them get killed in the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie. But then the film is backed up with the fact that, oh, we have a lot of returning characters from the original film. And like you said, having that continuity is fantastic because that's not always the case. And especially with a slasher series that have multiple sequels, generally there's one character that might return. It's either like the final girl that survived or it's some sort of auxiliary character that made an appearance, but they were probably like a B-list name or not nearly as famous. So their uh, availability was definitely more, uh, more readily available for a sequel, whereas a big name star might not want to be associated with the horror film anymore. So I think in that regard, it's great. And in the long term, once we get into like Scream 3 and 4, seeing the, some of the same characters pop up, I think is really going to be key and just kind of our investment into those movies and into scream in general.
1: Mm-hmm. I was going to say to piggyback off that real quick. Um, the thing that I love about Wes Craven and these, in these movies and the writer as well, at least the head writer they do things that you expect in a movie, but then they also find a way to do the, the opposite of it. and it still works in the film. So to, to the point of that you said, um, a lot of horror movies, it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, the African American characters live long. Well, in this movie, the, um, the camera guy for Gale Weathers, he, uh, you know, he makes the very smart decision, obviously. He's like, no, I found out what happened to your last uh, camera guy. I have no interest in this. But he comes back and lives to, to tell the tale, at least, you know, lives to work uh, another day, I guess, with Courtney Cox's character. So in the same way that at the opening, again, they exploit that kind of a um, you know, trope, yeah. In the same movie, you have that happen that's completely opposite, and it very much works with the narrative. So again, the way that they expose certain tropes, um, but again, build off of them as well, um, it's it's just a testament to why this is such a great movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in getting back with the characters that are returning, while we have some core characters that return, like we said, we've got Gale Weathers, we've got Dewey, we have Cotton Weary, we have obviously... um, Sydney, we have randy but then there's also a new crop of characters because sydney has gone on to college right and so it's all about kind of how her and her new friends are dealing with the copycat killer that has popped up and i'm curious what you thought of the new characters because we have obviously in the very beginning we're introduced to jada Pinkett smith omar epps who get killed off very quickly but then there's also timothy oliphant we have uh, Sydney's boyfriend Derek, who's played by Jerry O'Connell. So I'm curious kind of what you thought of the new crop of scream characters that are kind of core to the film. Uh, again, I think
1: I think they played their own individual role in the same way that um, the characters in the first movie, um, at least Sydney's friends were your typical, you know, high school schmucks in that sense. Have you know the college frat boys? They they're played to a T in this movie, at least specifically in regards to Timothy Oliphant and Jerry O'Connell. Um, I, I think the again the sorority sisters that are, are relatively prominent in the film. Um, we knew girls like that when we were in college. We knew guys like Jerry O' well not to that extent, obviously, but uh, we knew guys that were in the type of you know frat boyness of. Gary O'Connell's character and Timothy Oliphant's character. Um, so I think, again, they all played an integral role for what they were supposed to do. Um, at least for me, my favorite character in this, weirdly enough, was Leave Schreiber, just because, and I'm probably butchering his name, but um, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. The the whole movie, it's, it's basically bringing us back to the point that, maybe this guy who was wrongfully convicted has become a crazed killer and it points a lot of directions to it. Um, And again, I I love the way that the, that Wes Craven builds that kind of tension uh, in scenes like, you know, when they're in the library and he comes to talk to Sydney you you get the feeling that this guy isn't all right. He isn't all there necessarily. Um, so although in in your gut, it's telling you, I don't think it's him. It again, starts pointing the direction more and more that, oh yeah, this guy is clearly not right. And we should be taking a harder look at him.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. He definitely gives one of the better performances of the group. and he, And I have in my notes, he's actually one of the characters I think is utilized the least considering how strong he is, I really wish he had been in the film more and had more of a central role. But to his character, it's and it kind of shows the growth from Scream 1 to Scream 2, it's not just that his character like might be unbalanced. It's that he has a motivation for being a potential suspect, right? This idea that he was wrongly accused and that's essentially ruined his life. All anybody can see him as is a serial killer, even though We know that he hasn't done anything wrong or we learn that he hasn't done anything wrong. So it's very rare, I think, that we see in slashers they're able to bring a character back from the previous film and really shape them in a new way that fuels that narrative. Obviously, not every slasher has the kind of mystery angle that Scream does, but his character has a lot of growth just in terms of how much we're able to explore that character and seeing how that character takes the events of the first film and events that happened previously, but then really grows in not only narratively, but within kind of like the interactions with the rest of the cast, which was, I think really well done. Um, Yeah. I mean, I Sydney Prescott remains one of my favorite characters from a slasher series. I mean, I just love her character because not again, it shows the growth that she's made from the first film, right? We were introduced to her, And she wakes up and she gets a phone call and there's that strange voice on the phone. It sounds like Ghostface. And we're like, oh, shit, this is happening already. And then she kind of reaches over and picks up and she's got caller ID and she calls the guy out by name. And then she has the uh, like the laws of harassment, phone harassment and all these things. And the way that she kind of like is bored and reciting the law to this guy who's being a dickhead, it just shows kind of this is a new norm for her, right? She's used to people fucking with her, but she's gotten to the point that she's kind of scabbed over it, right? She's so accustomed to reading off the laws and saying, oh yeah, you can go to prison for what you're doing, that it's almost like she's not even bothered by it. She's kind of just going through the routine of it. And that's one of those moments that, again, it shows an actual growth from the previous film to the sequel. And it's not just, oh, they added a two onto the end. It's kind of like, oh, the characters behave in a way that, is indicative of the things they've experienced in the past. They didn't just shrug off the events of the first film. A bunch of their friends got killed. But it shows kind of like how those experiences and those events really shape them. And I'm excited to see how these characters continue to grow should they survive in Scream 3 and 4. So to your point about Sydney, it's really interesting to see the
1: dichotomy of how she acts, where in the first one, she sleeps with... What's his name? Bobby? Billy. Billy, excuse me. Uh, Billy. And then afterwards, she says something in reference to like, who did you make a call to in in prison? Right. Or one call in jail. Um, And the notion is that he might be the killer. He might have had something to do with making a call that resulted in the killer arriving. Right. Um, Whereas in this movie, um, as soon as people start to suspect that it's Derek. She kind of breaks off from, or excuse me, not suspect that it's Derek. As soon as the, the killings start happening again, she tells Derek that I, I, we can't be seeing each other right now because she understands in her mind that everybody that's around her does die. Um, so again, you know, Derek's character resulting in this is probably one of the saddest kind of results for a character in a horror movie. Cause he does seem to actually care about her and Uh, again, the way that he dies with her thinking that he was in some way, the guy that was trying to kill her to end up, you know, resulting in that very, um, I guess, Shakespearean death
0: that he had. (laughs) Uh, It's, uh, it's, it's very interesting how that played out. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely, he is very much a tragic character. And again, it speaks to this idea that these characters have all grown from the experiences of the original film in that, oh, we're going to take preventative measures to try to prevent what happened to us previously. And we see the ramifications of that. But in terms of Scream 2 and how it's very self-aware, again, there's lots of self-referential humor there's, uh, to horror films and the genre in general and tropes. What did you think of it handling itself as a sequel in terms of the referential humor is not just like, oh yeah, I'm going to mention a bunch of horror movie titles, but the film itself in acknowledging that it is a slasher sequel. How do you think that that was handled? Uh, I think Jamie Kennedy's character was kind of integral in,
1: in making it a sequel in the sense that it's different, but it's a continuation because he served as a, I mean, Obviously, the, the film revolves around Sidney Prescott, but I think he served as a really good kind of narrative bridge to show, okay, these are some of the new rules that we need to be worrying about. Um, I, I can't recall them off the top of my head, but it was very much um, it was very much unique to the time that they were living in after the original Scream movie. Uh, and the way that he described it, obviously, for the most part, it ended up coming true uh, to his detriment as well, unfortunately. Uh, so, you know, I think that again, you know, in my viewing of this, um, I think that this stands, um, on a pedestal with some of the other kind of great sequels. And that, again, it, it carves out its own way of scaring people, but it does it in a way that's unique, um, in comparison to the first one.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It does a good job of, again, building it's bigger and better in terms of like the gore and the kills and whatnot. Um, I thought it was funny. I was reading kind of the inception of the sequel because the writer of the original film started writing the script. I think during the time that he was writing the original one, he so he wrote Scream and then he wrote out treatments for two sequels. And then during the let's see what was it? It was principal photography began six months after the release of Scream One. So it kind of it's funny that the film makes fun of the genre and the kind of trends within the genre. And then they had already had a a sequel streamlined, right? And it took, and it was released less than a year later. So the film itself is a slasher that makes fun of slashers. And yet it's following a lot of the conventions of slasher releases. This idea, I mean, you and I were talking before we started recording about slashers and sequels. And you said, oh, how many times can they make this movie? And that kind of, that perception of slashers is true to a certain extent. Back in the day, they used to make sequels and they'd come out a year 18 months after the original one which is not something that really happens anymore but that's a legitimate maybe not critique but observation of the genre that's very true to the heart of the genre in a certain period of time and it's just funny that a film that is all about making fun of slashers and horror movies kind of in and of itself it's true to that to those types of observations but i really liked the scene where they're in the, I don't know if it's, I think it's supposed to be a film class and the film class begins debating sequels. And that's one of the first kind of major scenes with a lot of dialogue in it. That's not, uh, people getting killed. Uh, so I'm kind of curious what you thought of that scene. Cause the whole origin of that scene is them talking about sequels and it's very on the nose, obviously, but it's kind of the film saying like, Hey, we're going to acknowledge this is a slasher sequel. And yet we're going to have a conversation about some of the best sequels ever made. So
1: this is kind of cheating for me because, again, I've seen this the, this movie before. But like I said in the, the beginning, there are certain tells when you've seen a movie or you've seen uh, a certain genre of film where you start to learn like. You know, if someone's talking in a certain manner, we should probably keep a closer eye on you. Notice that in that scene, uh, Mickey, played by Timothy Oliphant, who's fantastic. He was very, very um, specific about like what he thought was happening. And he was very like his tone was a lot higher than everyone else's. Um, So again, when I watched the movie in in full and then I look back on that scene, that was a small tell in my opinion that he might have a little bit more to do with what's going on than Patrick who seemed a little bit more down to earth and was just giving a suggestion versus Timothy's kind of uh, matter of fact tone. Um, But I loved again in the way that You know, we had a little bit of a callback. I think it was Drew Barrymore's character who was talking about the first Nightmare on Elm Street was good, but the other ones weren't that great. Have characters in a horror movie talking about other horror movies. Um, It's, again, it's, if in in most films we saw that, we would think this is kind of ridiculous. But Wes Craven and the, the head writer of this obviously, you know, weave this into a way where it's relatively believable. Um, So I, you know, to that effect, I really did enjoy it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that scene is so fantastic, too, because Randy, of course, played by Jimmy Kennedy, is the returning character. We know why he's so passionate. He's a movie buff. We learned that in the first film. And it's very clear from this scene, like his investment and his uh, the amount of enthusiasm he has for the conversation, how animated he becomes is due to a love of film. And yet Timothy Oliphant's character is super impassioned about this and gets very kind of uh, like you said, he's louder than everybody else. And yet we don't know why he is so engaged and enthused about this conversation, even though you could probably say, well, it's a film class. He likes film at the same time. We don't know him. We don't, we know why Randy is so passionate because movies are his life. I mean, he's the one that spills out the, uh, the, the horror movie rules for us. And those rules get expanded upon in this film. And so We know why he is behaving the way that he is. And yet, Timothy Oliphant, we're kind of like, okay, why is he so passionate about this to the point he's making a scene in class? Um, I mean, I just love that they have a conversation about what's better, Alien versus Aliens, Terminator versus Terminator 2. I mean, those are very classical sequel conversations that people have very frequently. So that's, on some level, like I relate to that because I've had that conversation. But again, to begin the biggest bout of dialogue in the movie early on, and have it be discussing the topic of sequels within a sequel, I thought was just really great. And it's a way, again, that Scream 2 doesn't just feel like Scream again. It feels like it's this it could not be more self-referential considering it's picking apart sequels and yet the film itself is a sequel. I just think it comes together really, really well. But in terms of like all that referential humor, what did you think just about the humor in general? Did you find that the gags and the jokes worked better this time around? They worked about the same, or did you feel that they kind of returned to the well, as it were, for some of the humor?
1: Um, you know, I think there were certain scenes that were good, um, but again, you know, to the Omar Epps getting stabbed in the ear, um, that <laughs> that's goofy, but, uh, you know, again, the, the way that they did that and the way that, um, uh, what was her face? Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Maureen, she like starts to, um, kind of cuddle up next to, uh, who she thought was, uh, Phil played by Omar Epps. Um, and then she sees like the blood that's on the inside of his jacket. Uh, that whole scene again, it, it's, it was amusing. I, I don't, you know it wasn't necessarily as funny as it was again amusing to me um i think the way that they handled it for the most part it was it was okay i'd rate it like a 5 out of 10 um but i don't think it was handled in the same manner that the first movie was where there were some genuinely funny scenes where this one is more of like all right let's let's get the show on the road kind of a thing
0: the humor definitely landed for me more than i was expecting for a sequel right a lot of the time in movies that have a humor element to them the second time around obviously the jokes are not going to hit as hard because they're probably going to be pretty similar to the original film but in this one again i liked how a lot of the especially early on the humor is all about the people that are playing the characters from the first film in the stab movie and how they keep talking about how like oh they probably cast me as this person and then we see they actually did or they talk about how authentic this movie Stab is to what happened. And then some of the characters don't look anything like the real actors or they drop those little lines where they're like, oh, who played Dewey in Stab? And it's like, oh, David Schwimmer, who is a co-star in Friends with, um, with uh, Courtney Cox. Or there's that joke when they're in that college campus and they're talking about how, oh, Courtney Cox's character, Gail Weathers, is saying like, oh, there's naked pictures of me that have been published, but they put my head on Jennifer Aniston's body and one of the, so another co star of Friends reference, but also like that really happened to Courtney Cox in real life. Somebody photos, uh, released Photoshop pictures of her. So again, it's this idea that Scream will always be referential to not only horror, but also to pop culture in a way, or at least this was prevalent in Scream too. It's tapping into real world pop culture, which, To a certain extent, it didn't in the original Scream. The original Scream didn't really reference current events at all or things in pop culture that had happened, other than obviously films. But that was applied in a way that I thought, kind of, again, it expands the idea of what Scream is. It's never referential to current events quite in the way that like Scary Movie was, which is so over the top that if you revisit it, it's kind of like, okay, that's just like so dated or whatever. But in terms of Scream, again, there's that kind of level of humor and nuance where they're able to insert these jokes at the perfect times. Even in the original Scream, this idea of like technology, right? Somebody's suspicious because they have a cell phone. Well, just a year later, the way that society's portrayed in Scream 2, everybody has cell phones now. And that gives us one of the best scenes in the movie, I think, where they're trying to track down Ghostface on the college campus and they start tackling every single person they see with the cell phone. This idea that, oh, he could be literally anybody. And that's one of those little moments that it's a very simple idea and yet it expands on this idea of scream and the core mystery that, hey, it could be anybody. They they float the idea that Ghostface is more than likely somebody that's involved in Sidney's life because as uh, Dewey says, like they get off on that. But this idea also that, hey, everybody has a cell phone nowadays and this is just a year later, maybe it's just some freak that saw that movie Stab and now they're stalking them to this movie. And again,
1: you mentioned it earlier that um, sequels have to have a certain level more of gore or kills to really kind of fulfill that mantle. What, what did you think of the kills? Did you have a personal favorite or, or kind of one that
0: made you kind of squeam the most? So it's funny you mentioned that because obviously the original film, I think it took eight times of submitting it to the MPAA before the film would get an R rating instead of an NC-17 rating. And with this time being the sequel and this idea it has to be bloodier and bigger, the version of the film that we got was actually supposed to be a version that was far more violent and gory than Craven actually wanted. He wanted to submit a version that was like the extremely violent version that he wasn't really invested in. So that way, eventually the MPAA would give him an R-rated version that he actually was planning on making. So he wanted to go the, instead of going not extreme, and then they continue to cut and it starts to interfere with the product and the identity of a horror film, he went the opposite. He went super extreme over the top. So that way, if they start to cut down on the content, it's still very much a horror film and a slasher film. But the MPAA kind of was aware of what Scream was now and how it's not just a straight up slasher. It's more a commentary on the genre. It's got humor elements that they actually went with the far bloodier version and gave it an R rating instead of an NC-17, which I thought was funny. It shows kind of just the perception of a film plays so much into not only the ratings at that time, but again, it's a year later. It's a year later and the film is coming out with a sequel and the NPA is already like, oh, okay, we know what this is this time around. We're going to make some exceptions and we're going to allow you to have this content that I don't know, less than a year ago, we would have given an NC 17 rating. So I thought that was funny. But after that brief history lesson, uh, I definitely liked Omar Epps's death at the beginning. I thought it was pretty funny just because like he gets stabbed through a, a wall, which is just like, I don't know if that would actually really happen. I'm pretty sure a knife would break, but it is one of those moments where it does kind of capture the gore and blood and the visceralness of a a traditional slasher. I mean, he gets stabbed in the ear and then he gets stabbed in the face, I think, too. And it's just so over the top and shocking that it is at odds with the humor element that the film begins with so strongly. And then, of course, we have Jada Pinkett's death, which is both tragic and horrifying that she gets killed and there's hundreds of witnesses and yet nobody notices until she gets right up in front of the screen and falls over and dies like that was a really great uh death scene I thought. But how about you? What was the death that stood out to you? Um probably
1: Jamie Kennedy's Randy's death. I was so um, fucking mad when they killed him. That seriously like I I was, you know, for for most of the the two movies that we've seen of Scream, I'm not necessarily mad at deaths. Uh you know, I'm sad or horrified whatever the kind of word is for that but randy's really did make me upset to that effect just because he's such an integral character to the development of the story um and kind of the the progression of it outside of of the sphere of sydney in that sense right um really quick side note what was the MPAA or whatever that thing is called on in the 90s they let showgirls on with a r rating like elizabeth whatever the hell her last name is she flopped like a salmon out of water on a guy and they gave that an ra like someone gets stabbed with uh what is that uh what's the uh, blood thing called in there corn syrup right yeah they use
0: corn syrup and food coloring
1: yeah but they they said that uh you know it's too gory for some of that stuff and again uh, fast forward 20 years, this is you know probably a PG-13 rating for a lot of films right now for what was going on. So it's it, it's very weird how they were structuring that in the 90s.
0: I mean, dude, going back into the 70s, like, the MPAA is one of those things that I get on a soapbox about seemingly every other episode of the podcast just because it's so ridiculous, the different kind of standards that they had for certain films and at certain times. Obviously, horror films, I think, were for the most part unjustly treated in a lot of ways just because of the overall perception of the genre. So they were more likely to be very stringent on that. And the film, uh, Scream 2, even kind of addresses that a little bit. This idea that violent, it's not explored as much as I would like, but it is explored in a little bit where this idea that violent media makes people violent, right? And that was a big talking point in the 90s and in early 2000s, especially after things like Columbine happened and people start talking about Heavy metal music makes people depressed and suicidal, and video games make you want to go kill your classmates, which, of course, there's no basis for any of that. Um, so I thought that that was an interesting angle. But again, that perception of what horror movies are, and while it was not necessarily applied to the sequel, because like we said, the sequel is bloodier and gorier, and it was getting an R rating, They ha- the only reason it got that R rating, though, is because, oh, this, is, this has humor in it. This is a satire to a certain extent. If it didn't have that, though, the MPAA would have definitely given this an NC-17 rating under the guise of, oh, this is a violent film that we're protecting minors because if minors see this, they might run out and try to kill somebody or something to that extent. So, yeah, I have a constant bone to pick with the MPAA. But um, one other scene that I really liked that did not actually have a death in it was the play set piece when Sydney is being convinced not to leave her drama class or her acting class. And then they'd go through a dress rehearsal of that, and it's this very elaborate kind of dance set piece where there's lots of effects going on, there's lots of lights flashing, and then there's all of these masked people dancing around her as if they're about to sacrifice her. And then we see brief glimpses of Ghostface amongst the crowd of people that are pretending like they're about to kill her. I just love the intensity of that scene, and even though, again, nobody gets killed in that scene, it is very reminiscent of a legitimate scene from a horror movie. It's a very tense scene. The way that it's shot with Ghostface ducking in and out, I think is just, it speaks to how skillful Wes Craven is. And even though this film is largely satire, he's able to still allow the film to carry itself like a horror movie, much like in the scene when Sydney and her roommate escape that car and they have to crawl across Ghostface's lap as he's unconscious. That's an incredibly intense scene for, and I thought that that was one of the strongest examples of, Wes Craven being able to inject legitimate horror scenes into a movie that from afar people that might not know it, they're like, Oh, that, yeah, it's kind of like one of those scary movies. Uh, the, the comedy satire scary movie rather. But I mean, yeah, it, this movie is just such a strong blend and a culmination of Wes Craven's horror talent, but also again, expanding on the self-aware nature of scream and what scream stands for. Well, you know,
1: Coming to what Scream does stand for is obviously people trying to kill Sidney Prescott at the core of it. What was your reaction to the to the realization of who the the killers were?
0: Yeah, so the, this is a great segue because I was gonna bring this up. This idea that, again, the film is constantly referencing horror sequels, slasher sequels, and yet it it itself has the ultimate, slasher sequel kind of twist in it in that they present an antagonist that you could never guess you could never guess that billy loomis's mother was going to be the the second ghostface killer there's no way that you would ever be able to guess that there's no indications of it and that's one of those elements that people that aren't fans of horror a lot of time are like oh that's bullshit i could never have guessed that and yet i have always loved that because it's legitimately legitimately surprising if you can't guess something, it's going to be surprising. And this idea that you have to be given a chance to figure something out. I don't, I personally don't necessarily agree with. Um, But what did you think of that twist? So I loved it. And um,
1: I, the Timothy Oliphant character was kind of the beginning for my understanding of how, a lot of horror movies and specifically SVU episodes, Law & Order SVU episodes play out. It's always the, the character that you see in like one of the first opening scenes and then you don't see them again for the next 45 minutes that somehow usually play a role in this. Um, hashtag Mariska Hargitay, love that girl. Um, but I, again, I love the fact that throughout that film, you start to sense that... Um, uh billy's mom billy loomis's mom uh she's you know she wants to be gail weathers she really aspires to be her um but we again we just see her as she's just some kind of you know low light or lowly reporter that's trying to make a name for herself and uh establish herself in some way but again going back to that whole to to all of her scenes she never actually goes by and talks to Sydney, and that should be a really big um, you know red alert in our heads because if you're trying to break this case, how are you not talking to the main person that this case is about? Um, so again, the way that they structured this and uh, I just I thought it was a really, really well done kind of bow to, to tie this all up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things again where the film presents enough reasonable doubt throughout. Again, I can't undersell how important that is to the both films that I've seen so far in the series in that the mystery is not treated like an afterthought. You know, again, like you said that with uh, the uh, SVU rule where it's generally it's the first or second person you meet in those episodes that's guilty for a lot of slashers back in the day, like that was a legitimate thing as well. It's like, oh, the creepy old guy either served as a misdirect like in the Friday the 13th movies or The creepy old guy is the one that's killing everybody. And it's like, of course it was him. Why wouldn't it be him? He's creepy and old and weird. So for these movies, I really appreciate that Craven and Williamson uh, really took the time to ensure that the mystery itself is a respectable one. They present legitimate Mr. X. They present enough characters with enough potential motivations that you could see them be the killer. And the film, again, it promotes this idea that it could be anybody. It could be somebody close to Sidney. But then the notoriety of Stab and how popular that film is, it legitimately could be a copycat killer. And so expanding, having the same dedication for the mystery and then expanding the concept of Scream from Scream 1 to Scream 2, it really does a fantastic job of presenting a legitimate mystery that is capped off by an ante- a suspect that you could never guess, which I think is a really beautiful combination between those two uh, elements that make the mystery even stronger in this one. No, I, I agree. And I think,
1: you know, we'll, we'll talk about the third scream. I think this scream out of all of them had the best ending just because I I think this is the, the most, this is the biggest twist. Cause there's certain indications in both scream three and scream one that really point to, to those eventual revealings of the killers right whether it's billy you know dropping his cell phone when he climbs into uh the house to you know quote unquote save sydney in the first movie um you know or i will i won't jump into the third one quite yet but um there was very minimal outside of again timothy oliphant's very brief uh introduction where he's being very kind of matter of fact on those horror movies that they're talking about um you don't really see that character. So you forget that he even really exists. Right. Uh, I think the, when, when he kills Patrick, um, or excuse me, is his name Patrick? Or, I'm sorry. Uh, Derek, Derek, Derek uh, played by Jerry O'Connell. Um, when he kills him, I think we have an understanding that, okay, there's obviously something very different. And when um, Timothy Oliphant asks, you know, let's see who's behind door number two and you see gail weathers come out if she was the killer in this i would have lost my freaking mind because that really would have been the biggest kind of twist and it's not out of this world um but i i really did love the the ending of this where um uh, miss loomis kills timothy oliphant which actually is a relatively good idea because only one person knows the stuff. It's obviously you have a much higher chance of succeeding, right? Um, but then, Leave Schreiber's character comes in, and he's basically negotiating with Cindy as she has a gun to his to her head. Uh, so again, to your point about the humor of this, again, there I think there were some scenes that did a little bit over the top but that again that's very on par with what leave schreiber's character seemed to be wants to get some sort of fame out of it um to his detriment or not um but yeah i mean i again i i love the way that this movie ends because it gives us a a clarity on what happened we have a finality of okay it's leave schreiber although he might not be the the best character in the world he's an innocent one Um, and again, we, we get the, the bow, so to speak on, uh, on Derek's character and Randy's character.
0: And I love that last moment of humor that's injected where they shoot Mrs. Loomis and then she sits up at the end. I think it was, was it Miss Loomis or was it Timothy Oliphant?
1: Uh, Jumped up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So he jumps up and then of course, Sydney shoots him in the head and then she goes, they always come back, which is a nod to the original film and just slashers in general, this idea that The killer always comes back one last time. But I mean, overall, again, like you said, this film is wrapped so well that if this was the last Scream movie, it could very well just be the last Scream. And I think that that is always key in that at least part one and part two, they don't end open-ended as if, oh, the the potential for a sequel. It ends it very naturally. So that way, if they choose not to make a sequel next year for 10 years or ever again, the film's able to stand on its own. And I mean, again, I haven't seen Scream three or four and I'm looking forward to watching those, but Scream one and Scream two, I feel do such a good job of what they set out to do and how Scream two grows from Scream one in a lot of interesting ways that it just, it makes for a slasher sequel that is rare and that it's able to be self-aware of what it's doing. And it has an identity that, Hey, I can't carry on with the scream movie and just have it be scream again, because then that wouldn't be addressing the fact that I'm making fun of slasher sequels and I am a slasher sequel myself. Um, There were a couple of funny things that I learned in my research about the overall mystery. So the cast were not told the identity of the killer until the last day of principal photography. So it was like a legitimate mystery amongst the cast themselves the cast members had to sign confidentiality clauses as part of their contracts once they found out the identity not to say anything because what ended up happening was is that the script got leaked to the internet of the movie and that was I think like probably one of the first major films that that ever happened to. Like obviously now that's something that has happened more times than anybody can count, right? This idea that, oh, the script leaked, we know how the movie ends kind of thing and that's how spoilers reign on the internet. But it was so bad, the leak, that they ended up actually rewriting the film. And they were rewriting it so frequently that generally pages were only getting finished the day of the scene was being shot. So at one point they were told who the killer was, but then they had to end up changing the entire thing at the end of the film. So I think that it's really impressive overall, again, this idea that the film could undergo such massive restructuring. And yet, it doesn't feel like that from watching. Like we would never know that if I hadn't read it on the internet somewhere. You know what I mean? And so that speaks to the quality of the mystery. There's no real moments of this person is one hundred percent without any cert, without a shadow of a doubt, the killer. There's a couple of instances where a certain character might do something, and you're like, that's suspicious. And yet, three or four characters have that that suspicious moment. So again, even if you suspect somebody. The film doesn't beat you over the head with the fact that, hey, that person is most definitely the killer, which, I mean, it this movie is a really, really strong sequel that I was not expecting to like, honestly, as much as I did. Who, do you know who was the original killer then? Or at least in the the original uh, script? I don't remember who the original killer is. I remember that Timothy Oliphant was supposed to get killed by uh, Ghostface. So he gets killed by Mrs. Loomis but it was he was supposed to be a victim without knowing who Ghostface's identity was. I'm almost I, you know I might be misremembering this but I think that Lee Shriver's character was supposed to turn into Ghostface. I think that might have been the original ending this idea that he's been under so much scrutiny and so much false accusations of being Ghostface that he ends up becoming Ghostface. I believe that was the original ending. I'm not 100% sold on that. And I think the the big thing, again, with this movie that it doesn't do with that
1: other sequels do, it just uh, it didn't take the piss out of us, you know. So um, the fact that um, <laughs> the fact that, you know, it, it showed it again in a way that um, was very unique to to the first one, but continued on the story. Um, I, I just hats off to Wes Craven. This was a phenomenal movie uh, or at least a phenomenal sequel for him to make.
0: Absolutely. And I really can't wait to check out the third film either, because I'm excited to see if they're going to be able to continue this kind of upward trend of acknowledging that it's a slasher sequel, but then again, not kind of trying to just redo the previous film. And it's one of those things where I have so much faith in the creative team that I'm just more excited for this to watch Scream 3 than I have been. i don't know how many years this concept of like oh third film in a slasher series okay like that that we just don't have the climate right now for releases it's very rare that you get to the third film in a series with some modern movies and you're like you're genuinely excited for it you know outside of the kind of major franchise film series that are being released constantly but yeah uh, again i really appreciate having you on and i can't wait to chat about scream 3 next week it's my pleasure brother thanks for having me on If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.